please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, we're in an ongoing series in this letter. Um, and chapter 15 is the chapter in the Bible about resurrection from the dead. I'm going to take it in a little different direction. We have some preppers in our church. Do you know what that word means, prepper? Yeah? So preppers are those who are going to see our culture crumbling, and they are uh, getting the necessities of life all gathered so that if things really go south, they'll be able to have food and water and protection and electricity and so on. So they are shaping their present behaviors based on what they understand the future to be like. Uh, the point has been made that, in, to some extent, we're all preppers. We all live now based on what we think the future will be like. And if you think the future is going to be great and everything's going to go well and you're living your life now based on that understanding. Um, this is true, of course, for us as believers. What you believe about life after death does inevitably, indelibly shape how you live now. And this chapter of the Bible is preaching to you that there is resurrection from the dead bodily, that Christ, therefore, has been raised from the dead bodily, that you, too, will be one day raised from the dead bodily. And so the conclusion at the end of the chapter is, therefore, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So the resurrection of the dead, including Christ's resurrection, so our resurrection, should motivate living for Christ now. And if you're not living for Christ now, if you're not abounding in the work of the Lord now, it's because you don't think ultimately, functionally, that there will be resurrection from the dead bodily. So we have to get this straight. We have to understand the impact that Christ died and was raised. So we're in verses 12 to 22 this morning. Um, which is dealing with those who deny that there is resurrection from the dead. Let me read it, and I want to explain a bit more about what was going on there and then apply it in a few ways to us now. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he was raised from the dead or that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, 
so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Let's pray. Father, with our whole heart, we ask that you would answer us, that we might live in obedience to your word. Teach us to observe your testimonies. Help us in the morning to cry for help, and in the evening come before you. So hear our voice according to your steadfast love, O God. You are near. All of your commandments are true. And teach us then to long for your testimonies that you have founded forever. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, what's going on in this passage? I said last Sunday that they were denying that Christ uh, was raised. That isn't exactly accurate. We see in our text in verse 12 that some are saying that there's just no resurrection from the dead at all. And yet somehow they were still trying to hold that Jesus was raised from the dead. So somehow they were saying that Christ has been raised from the dead, but there's no resurrection from the dead. And so the actual problem is that they want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to somehow have faith that Jesus was raised, but not for anybody else. So this is likely related to some super spiritual philosophical idea that downplays the importance of the, the body, of the physical. That there was this dualism that the material physical bad, less important, but spiritual good. We fall into this trap as Christians. We believe that our spiritual life is the important thing, but physical bodily doesn't matter, is unimportant, maybe even evil. The Corinthian church had this problem. If you remember back in chapter 7, they were saying that it's good for married people not to engage in marital, marital intimacy. Why? Because the body doesn't matter. Physical things don't matter. All that matters is spiritual And so they're denying the importance of the body, the goodness with which God created the body, and the need to deal with bodily stuff. So it seems like that has creeped into their understanding of the resurrection. Now, I think the pressure for that is likely just coming from the world in their day. Pagans denied the resurrection of the body. They were in an important Roman pagan city. And it's really uncool for Christians to believe in something that's so backwater, backwoods, that intelligent, enlightened people would never believe that there is a resurrection from the dead. And so wanting to be accepted by the world at their jobs, in government positions, just in the world, they somehow want to hold, maybe secretly that Jesus was raised, but not something so unscientific that there would ever be any kind of bodily resurrection after death. And so we see this in our day. We need to hold fast to the central biblical teaching that Jesus died and rose, but Genesis 1, it's all right to be a Christian and disbelieve that God created the world in six days. Yes, Jesus died and rose, but it's okay to waffle on whether a man can marry a man. Jesus died and rose, 
But whatever inconvenient truth Christianity has, you can waffle on so long as you keep Jesus' death and resurrection. And what Paul is saying, no, if you deny bodily resurrection, Jesus who had a body didn't rise either. And if Jesus didn't rise, then everything that we believe about Christianity is nothing. Right? So look at Paul's logic. Chapter or verse 12. If no resurrection from the dead, chapter 13, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, verse 14, then the preaching that you depend on is in vain and your faith is in vain. Not only is our faith in vain, then we're lying about God because we've said that God raised him from the dead. Even more, in verse 17, you're still in your sins. There's no forgiveness. Verse 18, those that we love who have died in Christ have just perished. You'll never see them again because there's no resurrection from the dead. And then verse 19, Christians are the most pitied, the most to be pitied. Why? Because living for Christ comes with a cross. You have to deny yourself. You have to say no to things that people in the world say yes to. How awful. Or you're suffering persecution in this world, even though there's no resurrection from the dead. So you're sacrificing all this stuff for Jesus now, but there's nothing to come. How pitiable. You could have more enjoyment in this life. And the point is, too often Christians wanting to be included in the world, wanting to have a seat at the table, wanting to not thought to be uncool or backwater, are willing to deny truths in Scripture that we don't understand the downstream implications from. This is the hallmark of liberalism. Liberals want to make decisions now without considering the future implications of them. Christians fall into this. We want to deny the resurrection from the dead now, not realizing that it undoes everything that we hold dear in Christianity downstream. We don't tease the threat out. And we do this in lots of ways. Some want to deny that there's a historical Adam, that God did create all of humanity out of one man and woman that he created from the dust. We think that we can give in there because it doesn't affect anything else. Well, if there's no initial Adam, right, then there's no real doctrine of sin in Scripture. If there's no initial Adam in whom all of man died, then there's no need for a new Adam, Christ, in whom all men live. If you lose Adam, you lose Christ. But go ahead and tell the world that there's no historical Adam. Give in there. Or maybe you just want to mess with Genesis 3, or 2, I'm sorry, Adam and Eve, one man, one woman. You think it's okay to mess with biblical sexuality? That there's really no differences between men and women. We can give in there because it, it's not really central. But God created male and female to enter into a covenant marriage that would reveal the truth of how Christ loves his church. So go ahead and give in on biblical maleness and femaleness. You won't lose anything else, right? This is what they're doing. And so what's Paul's solution? What's Paul's solution to this? It's just to go back to Scripture. Verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. 
And earlier in chapter 15, he says, in accordance with the scriptures. He, he doesn't do anything but preach the truth of God's word here. That's it. He just calls Christians back to the doctrine of scripture. God's word is breathed out by God. Who are we to question what God has said? And the apostles saw him raised from the dead. Eyewitness testimony based on scripture. That should be enough for us as believers. That's it. So that's this text in a nutshell. So the temptation that the Corinthian church was facing was the temptation to shift from clear biblical teaching in order to be accepted by the world. That's it. We don't know the specific details of exactly what the Corinthians were denying. They knew what Paul was writing about. We don't know exactly why. But I think we can say that they're facing the common temptation that the church has always faced, which is to feel pressure from the world and to waffle, to not stand firm, or to plainly deny scriptural teaching. Do you see that happening with the Christian church? Now, some of us want to say how awful the current church is and how we, we just wish we were like the church back in the 1950s or the 1850s or the 50s, the first 50 years. They didn't do stuff like that. Well, here we have an early example of an early church. It's always common to man, isn't it? The temptation to not want to be rejected, the temptation to fear what man thinks more than what God thinks, and so give in where we think we can make accommodation. And so one of the things you need to do with this is look at yourself in the mirror and repeat after me, you have this temptation. This is common. You may not have it where other people have it, but you have it. What do I mean? Well, let's just take something as simple as God made man first and woman second. There's this beautiful biblical truth of creation order. And it's glorious and it's wonderful and it works. And that that creation order comes with it a way that men should live with women and women should live with men. And the Bible takes that creation order and applies it everywhere. It's not just applied in church where men are to be pastors and elders only and not women. It's not just applied in the home where a man is to lead his household. It's actually applied everywhere. Everywhere. It's applied in military service that a woman shouldn't put on a man's uniform. Because men were given the duty to protect and lay down their lives to protect women and children. And you're okay compromising there while trying to hold firm that it only matters to be male and female in the church or in the home, but not in military service or not in police service. Or maybe it's just in your home that you're willing to fudge. Under pressure in your marriage. We, we all face this pressure. And the pressure ultimately 
is a pressure to question what God has written. That's it. The doctrine here that they're questioning isn't just resurrection from the dead. It's undermining what God has said in Scripture. Look back at chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So the ultimate doctrine here that Paul is dealing with isn't just resurrection from the dead. It's the truth that God's word is from God and is eternally true. And when we question any part of it, we're not just questioning that part. We're questioning the truth that God's word is God's word. Parents do this. You feel pressure when your children are behaving in a way that is outside of the biblical commands, and you're okay fudging there. Right? You're okay softening there. It's okay for my child to be involved in an unbeliever romantically because I think it's evangelistic. I can fudge there. I can soften there. But I hold fast to Scripture. I believe it's all... God's inerrant word. You might feel this at work. My sister worked for a company that's involved in education. They required their employees to refer to the other employees by their preferred pronouns. It was a fireable offense to not refer to the other by their preferred pronoun. You might feel pressure to give in to he or she when he wants to be called a she. And lie. It's a lie, right? But it comes with a consequence and a pretty big one. How am I going to provide for my family? Or how am I going to provide for myself? And we can be really slick about it. The Corinthian church was being really slick about it. They weren't questioning the doctrine of Christ and his resurrection from the dead. They were just questioning resurrection from the dead of others. But Jesus still was raised. And so we can fool ourselves. Now, I want to, as I bring conviction there and try to strengthen you there, also say I'm really glad that I've heard from many of you that you're not doing this. We had a member of our church who was here on Easter with beloved family members who were really displeased with our church. (laughs) The kinds of songs we sang and the kind of things we said. And this member response was, yeah, that's what people apart from Christ do. And I love them and I hope that they repent and believe in the gospel, but wasn't willing to compromise in order to be pleasing to family members. That's really good. But we should be strengthened to remember Jesus' word, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with his holy angels. We must fear God more than we fear man. 
we must fear God more than we fear man. That we are too at the end of 1 Corinthians and chapter 16, verse 13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. In regards to what? Well, the truth of Scripture. And so where do you feel pressure to shift off of the truth? To fit in. You cannot say you love Christ and question his word. We have to be very careful here, brothers and sisters. And yet rejoice when we don't. Jesus says in Matthew 5 that it is blessed to suffer reviling and rejection and persecution for his sake. And what he means there is for standing firm on his word. And so the issue in 1 Corinthians 15 of denying resurrection, bodily resurrection from the dead, wasn't mainly about bodily resurrection from the dead, wasn't it? mainly about holding firm to the inerrant, inspired, eternal, written, revealed word of God. It really does boil down to that for you as a believer. Do you believe God's word? Do you have the faith to believe what God has written? Because it's either that or you just believe yourself. That's it. It's either God is God and his word is true or you are. And I am not at all downplaying the real cost that you'll have to suffer in this world for standing firm on these things. And you know where the rubber is going to meet the road here. On environmentalism, which Christians should care about the environment, but we better be careful there. On the pressure coming, on the critical theory issues related to race and the issues related to male and female sexuality, transgenderism, marriage and family. But I don't think, I know anybody in this church is going to question that Marriage only between one man and one woman. I do know that we question whether or not a man and a woman should remain committed to each other when they've decided they don't want to be anymore. When they've lost that loving feeling. And so the evangelical church compromises in the area of divorce and remarriage. And so we ought to be careful enough to understand where we're tempted right here, right now, and not where we aren't. But Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen. Christ has actually been raised from the dead. And this is the center of our hope. This is it. This is it. Christ has been raised from the dead. He is, in verse 20, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does that mean? Well, you're familiar with the word tithe in the Bible. 
the background of the tithe in the Old Testament without getting into all the detail was often just agricultural. You would go plant a field or fields or a garden. And when the crop had grown and ripened, you would harvest. And the first fruit of it, the, ten, the initial 10% was given to the Lord. Acknowledging that it's all from him. It's all his. Thankful, grateful that God would cause the sun and the rain and grow food to supply you and others. And so in humble gratitude, acknowledging that it's all from his hand, acknowledging submission to him, joy in him, you give, returning, supporting the work of the temple or the church, 10%, the first fruits of it. We do this with the Sabbath. We gather on the resurrection day, on a Sunday, with God's people, setting aside this day as holy, as different. We don't do what we did on the other six days, hopefully. We set it aside as a day for worship and rest and hospitality, serving others. We don't use it as a day for production and making money, which is a good thing, but Sunday's a different day. Why? We set aside this one day, acknowledging that all seven days are his. As a gift, thanking him for all the other days, everything we do, this day is set aside to acknowledge that all of the days are his. This is a consistent pattern in the Bible. You give a little, showing that it's all his, grateful. Christ was like that. He was raised, acknowledging that all who have faith in him will be raised too. He's just the first harvest of billions more to come. Isn't that a glorious thought? He was a seed planted in the ground that grew and was harvested, and all other Christians that will be planted who believe in him will be following him, raised, harvested to God. Christ is the first of billions to come. How do we apply this? I want to be really tender in this next part because some that we love have lost loved ones, me included, who then have decided on cremation. Now, I'm going to acknowledge right up the front what you're already going through your mind. Who cares what we do with the body after it dies? Well, Christians do. We bury Why? Because we believe in bodily resurrection from the dead. Why don't we cremate? Because Christ wasn't cremated. Because Christians have never been cremated. Because God's people have never been cremated. You know who cremated? The pagans. Why? Because they didn't believe in resurrection from the dead. Now, does that matter whether you bury a body as much as it matters whether you are involved in, I don't know, witchcraft or sexual morality. Is is it essential? No, admittedly. Could somebody be cremated and still go to heaven? Absolutely. But the normal biblical pattern following Christ is death, burial, and resurrection. We care for our loved ones after death by taking care of their bodies, planting in the ground as seeds that will one day be raised. It is in a sense the last act of love for a loved one to bear their body that they lived faithfully in the Lord 
preparing it for burial, into the grave, burying, and the raising. But let me ask you, this gets to a larger issue. Why are so many Christians cremating today? What's the motivation? I can tell you because I've talked with it. We did it ourselves as a family with my father. Why? Finances. It's cheaper. And my dad didn't want to be a burden. Just cremate me. And so because of bodily resurrection, we'll get into this in, later in chapter 15, but I want to lay the groundwork now. What is a Christian? We follow Christ. That's the definition of a Christian, right? We're careful to follow him in everything. You want to follow him in this life, don't you, brothers and sisters? You want to follow him. His example, his courage, his truth-telling, his mercy and kindness, his behavior, how he said what he said. We are careful to follow Jesus all the way into death and burial and resurrection because we believe in bodily resurrection from the dead. So that's one implication And again, for those of you whom I love, who have lost loved ones recently and had them cremated, this is not meant to condemn you. You know I've talked to you about this privately, been reticent to talk about it publicly and caring for you, but here it is. So please, it's done. God is gracious. There is resurrection from the dead for those who've been cremated. But it's not the normal Christian pattern. A second implication comes from verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I titled the sermon after this verse. This was the most convicting to me. What does this mean? If in Christ we have hope in this life only, what is our hope as Christians? Resurrection from the dead. There is really no more profound, deeper hope for you or for me. This is our joy. This is why we live the way we live. This is it. This is hope that we can endure this life with all of the miseries and all of the woes and all of the sadnesses and all of the losses. Why? There's only one main reason. Because there is life forevermore after this, being raised from the dead. Right? Do you feel that in your bones? I mean, when you as a parent are raising children, I know you think about this, that you want them for it to go well after death. That's why you want them to live in a certain way now. Because you know eternity is forever. And you, you want them to have hope that they will live with the Father and His Son and the Spirit forever in joy and bliss and not in hell and misery. This is our hope. But if there is no resurrection from the dead and you are suffering all that you are suffering for living for Christ now, then that is pitiable. But the implication is living as a Christian 
changes how you live now, and that comes with suffering and loss and denial. So Jesus said that you have to deny yourself. You've all heard that, right? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. What does he mean there? He means that Christians are going to have to say no to themselves. He means that you can't watch a lot of the movies that unbelievers watch. You've got you to deny yourself that pleasure. And you should. Because it's just garbage. He, he means that you can't listen to everything that unbelievers listen to because you love Jesus and want to listen to things that help you love Jesus more. He means that on Thursday or Friday night at college, you can't go to the house parties and get all drunk and engage in all of the sexual morality that others do. You've got to deny yourself that and sit at in your dorm room by yourself. <laughs> he means that you have to manage your finances differently than the rest of the world and you don't just accumulate worldly girls like the world because you want to live for Christ. He means that you do have to wait for a believing husband or wife because you're a Christian. He means that you have to endure in a difficult marriage. You have to live different than the world now because we want to be pleasing to God then. But what if there's no resurrection from the dead? And you're doing all this denial now and others are rejecting you for living like that now, making fun of you, thinking you a dope. And there's no resurrection from the dead. That's pitiable. You're like those wackos who keep saying that Jesus is coming back on October 8th, 2021, sell everything, and then it doesn't happen. You're pitiable. That's what he means. But the implication is that following Christ costs, and it's worth it because of resurrection from the dead. That's the implication of this chapter. So, here's the connection. If there is resurrection from the dead, you should live a certain way now. If there isn't resurrection from the dead, then eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we all die. Who cares? So let me do it like this. How are you living now? Is your life now being lived in regards to the resurrection from the dead? Where are you saying no to yourself? We're saying yes to the things of Christ. Are you? And if you are, it's because you believe in a resurrection from the dead and you want to live now for that day. So young kids, following Christ is a joy now. Forgiveness is incredible. Knowing peace with God is awesome. But there is a cost for you guys to follow Jesus. You cannot live like the rest of the people your age. You can't believe what they believe. And that means that many of them will want to have very little to do with you. And that's worth it because of resurrection from the dead.
It means that parents have to make certain educational choices for their children and be looking weird to the world. But it'll be worth it because of resurrection from the dead. It means that when your parents say, no, we can't watch that, and you say, but, what do you kids say? Come on. Everybody else does. Even your friends at your Christian school. That you can think in your head it'll be worth it because of resurrection from the dead. And we could go on and on here, okay? And so this all matters because there is resurrection from the dead. There is. Christ was raised and so we will be too. And it's worth living for that now. It's worth the sacrifice. It's worth the loss. There is great joy now in living for Christ. But most of the pleasure and joy is coming. There is misery in this world, but it'll be worth it because of the resurrection from the dead. I compare, I consider the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Amen? Is that right? You're living. Let's live for that. Let's pray. Father, please give us faith to live now for that day. Keep us from moving off the truth of your word, no matter the difficulty and cost, and it will be great because of that day. And so fill up our hearts and our minds with the reality that we will actually be with you because of Christ through the work of your Holy Spirit. And so grant us faith. Forgive us for where we draw back. Please help us to focus on the resurrection which is coming. In Jesus' name, amen.